Our first scripture reading comes from Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 6 through 7. Is not this the fast that I choose, to lose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your kin? The second scripture reading comes from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel or a basket. But they place it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you please join me in prayer? Holy God, we thank you for your words to us. We ask that you would open our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Let us receive both the encouragement found in them and the challenge. Let us grow into the people you have called us to be. Amen. Good morning. Thank you again for the invitation to speak with you. Um, As Jackie said, I am a first-year seminary student up at ILIF School of Theology in Denver. Uh, I'm in the Master of Divinity program. Going to seminary has been a dream of mine for many, many years, basically because I am a nerd. I have been a nerd pretty much my entire life. 
For example, during my teenage years, I kid you not, I spent my free time memorizing entire books of the Bible for a sport called Bible quizzing. If any of you came from an evangelical background, you might know what I'm talking about. If not, I am happy to answer any questions <laughs> about this really bizarre pastime after the service. But in any case, my teenage obsession with memorizing large swaths of biblical text turned into an adult obsession with purchasing Bible commentaries and theology books and eventually led to me enrolling in seminary. My very nerdy self is really happy in seminary. <laughs> Most people want to know why I'm attending seminary. And when it comes up in conversation, I'm generally asked, oh, so do you want to be a pastor? Do I want to be a pastor? That's a big question. And it's a perfectly reasonable one, as a lot of my colleagues that are in my program are on the path to ordination with their respective church denominations. I've thought about it a lot and prayed about it, mulling it over as I try to discern my call. As much as I have thought about it, I still don't know if I want to be a pastor. And I think a lot of my hesitation lies in my concerns about the health of the church as an institution. Like me, I'm sure many of you, have, of you have read the disheartening statistics in the news about shrinking congregations and declining church attendance. Reports about churches having to close down, essentially going out of business. Church populations are aging in general as many young adults don't see a need to attend church. I worry that a lot of churches have become unattractive to the outside world. I suspect a lot of people don't like what they see in the church. Things like misogyny, homophobia, racism, infighting, poor management practices, questionable use of funds, just to name a few. On one hand, why are we really surprised, given the general behavior that we witness in society right now? Perhaps what we see in churches is par for the course, just a reflection of the rest of the world. I mean, take a look at Twitter if you want to get a read on what we think is acceptable discourse. Or drive I-25 to Denver and back to experience our general lack of love or even courtesy for our fellow citizens or visit a cafeteria during middle school lunch. It is bad out there. We humans are, are too often more than a little cruel to those around us. Add to that that the church in general hasn't exactly had a rosy history of good behavior. I can point to the Crusades or the Inquisition or the church's defense of slavery or any other massive missteps, missteps in church history to suggest that churches would more than likely be chock full of issues and problems and conflict and bad behavior. Still, I'm worried. I'm worried that people are turning away from the church 
deciding there isn't anything worth coming through the doors for. Are we dying off? Are we becoming outdated and irrelevant? Are we doing more harm than good? Is there hope for the church? Friends, I believe there is, and I think it lies in both an affirmation and a commandment Jesus gave to the earliest disciples, the first carriers of his message. In the past few weeks, we have studied the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been addressing his disciples as well as the crowds that were listening in, describing what sort of people will be blessed in the upside-down kingdom of God. He said, blessed are the meek, the poor in spirit, the peacemakers, the merciful, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are persecuted because of their devotion to Jesus. These are the kind of people Jesus promises will be blessed in his kingdom, those of whom he thinks very highly. As we come to the end of the Beatitudes, we arrive at verse 13. Jesus turns his attention to his rather nondescript group of followers and emphatically declares, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Notice the excitement of Jesus in these verses. He is championing his disciples, commissioning them, assuring them of their incredibly high value and also the incredibly great responsibility in carrying his message out into the world. I wonder if those in the crowd and perhaps the disciples themselves would have heard the expansive scope of the mission Jesus' affirmations implied and thought it audacious. I mean, Jesus tells this little uneducated bunch of followers who, as we see in the Gospels, frequently mistake Jesus's meaning in his words, who argue amongst themselves regarding which of them will be given the position of highest honor in the kingdom, who deny even knowing him and scatter when he is arrested, and who disappear into hiding when he is crucified. Jesus tells them that their ministry as his disciples will have significance on a global scale. Do you suppose even the disciples looked around in disbelief and asked, who, us? Now, there are many interpretations of what Jesus meant by calling the disciples the salt and the light. We know that salt was, in addition to being used to season food, often used as a purifier in the ancient Near East. In the days before refrigeration, it was salt rubbed into meat that preserved the food and kept it good. If salt sits in a jar on its own, it doesn't do very much. The value of salt is found when it is placed on or mixed into things. Even though salt is a simple, small, common substance, it can make a very big difference. Just think of the impact a teaspoonful of salt has on a dish of food. I believe Jesus is telling the disciples, the first ambassadors of his kingdom, the founding members of the worldwide church, 
that they will be a small but hugely influential force in the world. Theologian Dale Bruner, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, says, quote, Disciples who bring the Messiah into the world are the ones who most preserve, purify, flavor, and convict societies in history, end quote. Just as salt exists for food, disciples and the church exist for the communities around them, for the broken world. In a similar way, light is valuable because it enables people to see. If we turn on all the lights in an empty house, it is in fact a waste. But by lighting a single candle when the electricity goes out, we can allow an entire family to see. Even small amounts of light can break up what is oppressive darkness. Jesus, who himself was called the light, now tells the disciples that they will carry and reflect this light to the world. The Greek in verse 14, see, I told you I was a nerd, but the Greek is to cosmo, which means of the cosmos. They are the light of the entire universe. What expansive language Jesus uses, seeing his followers as a brightening force, not just to the earth, but to the entire cosmos. Church, we have great value and tremendous importance to our God. What I find incredible in these verses is that Jesus did not say to his disciples, you will become the salt of the earth, or you will grow into your role as the light of the world, or if you work hard enough and shape up and do everything right, you have a chance of being salt and light. But he said, you are these things. It is with incredible confidence and grace that Jesus names this small group in this way. He calls the disciples and those that follow them, the church, us. Not as they are, but as he sees and knows them to be. Jesus, the word made flesh, continues in the act of creation by calling the universal church into existence. He has great faith in our ability to become what he believes we are. We carry the healing, life-giving message of Christ. I think we often feel, as I assume the disciples felt, ill-prepared, inadequate, fragile as jars of clay. But Jesus assures us that we are his messengers, his ambassadors, his hands and feet to this broken world. What great trust he has in us. Let us feel for just a moment the warmth of Christ's love for us, his terrific hope in the church. Friends, this is good news indeed. And yet, our great calling as the salt and the light does not come without responsibility. Jesus has encouraged us, affirmed us, told us of our importance to the whole cosmos, and he now gives us our job description, so to speak. In verse 16, we are told to let our light shine, that the world will see our good deeds and give glory to God. 
What exactly does Jesus mean by these good deeds? I think the next few verses provide some more clues into what Jesus might be referring to. In verse 17, he begins, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus starts by defending his view of the law and the prophets, the Jewish scriptures, which became part of our Old Testament. It is clear he takes the commandments very seriously and asks that we do the same. I know as modern Christians, it is very tempting to ignore much of the Old Testament, to call its numerous long lists of commands and laws irrelevant in the light of Jesus. However, Jesus stresses emphatically his connection, and therefore ours, with its teachings. Texts like Isaiah 58, another of our lectionary readings that we heard today, give us insight into what our religion and good deeds should entail. It reads, Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice? to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin. We hear in this text concrete images of the kind of work we are called to do as the church, as people of God practical, liberating, healing work in our communities. But Jesus presses us further still. We are told that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if we want to see the kingdom of heaven. Another one of our tendencies as modern readers of the Bible is to give the scribes and the Pharisees a bad rap. We see them criticizing and challenging Jesus in the Gospels and think they just didn't get it, did they? However, these people were actually the most devoted, most serious religious people of the time. They were very committed to following God's laws. So when Jesus told his followers they were to be more righteous than the Pharisees, I wonder if they thought, how? That's impossible. But as Jesus will go on to show in the passages that follow in Matthew chapter 5, he is very much concerned with how we treat one another, and not just what we do, but with the attitudes of our heart. I think Jesus is calling us to a righteousness that goes beyond simply doing all the right things, supporting great ministries and causes, 
even beyond being an affirming congregation or working for justice in the world. I think Jesus is asking us to look inward at how we interact with one another, how we function as a church community, how we treat our neighbors both outside our walls and within the walls, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Bruner again comments, quote, there is to be something about the way Christians are, about the way they live together and talk about each other, and about the way they relate to the not always friendly surrounding world that is meant to catch the world's attention, that is to cause people to ask, what kind of people are these? Who are these people? How we, the church, live our lives individually, within our church communities, and out in the world matters greatly. We are called to live in a way that pulls the world towards us rather than pushes people away. Friends, I do think there is much of this salt and light business that our church does really, really well. We have partnerships with many local ministries here in Colorado Springs to maximize our impact. We house and feed homeless families right here within these walls as part of IHN. We march in the pride parade. We are an open and affirming congregation. We provide our whole lives courses, comprehensive sexuality education to our youth. I could go on and on and on. We are doing a lot of really good work. But as Jesus challenges us further, I wonder what other types of things we could consider. I'll suggest just a few possibilities. Like many of you, I am deeply concerned with the large numbers of teen suicides every year in Colorado Springs. How might we consider being a resource a light to the youth around us. How about the LGBTQ youth in Colorado Springs? In the north part of town where I live, sadly, there are often few or no resources for these teens. How might we consider partnering to create safe spaces for them up there? Gun violence troubles us, as does the treatment of refugees at our border. How could we be even more vocal about these issues? Be salt, working to prevent more decline and decay in our culture. And finally, as we saw in the news this past week, we're seeing the message of Jesus twisted and misused by some of the highest powers in this country, often without rebuke, from certain Christian leaders who align with them for political gain. How can we speak up and push back to places in the Christian world where darkness has crept in? Dear friends, in order to be salt and light to the world, to the cosmos, we must allow Jesus' command to be righteous, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to sink deeply into our hearts. I don't think we should accept 
that we will look the same as the rest of the world around us, that that's just the way it is. I believe instead we should take on the challenge to live as redeemed people, to grow into a community that is drastically different than the outside world, overflowing with peace and love and forgiveness for one another. A community that draws people towards it, compelled by what they see, causing them to ask, who are these people? Yes, this is a difficult command, and we feel its weight. And yet, there is so much good news, friends. Jesus himself has assured us of our relevance, our importance, and our influence. I have great hope in the church. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Let us stand tall, assured of the confidence Jesus has in us. Let us become what we have been called. Amen.